It's Friday, folks. You made it. Congratulations. It's going to be all right. A couple more hours, almost to the weekend. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us today as we take one more stab at turning down the noise of the news cycle before we get into the weekend. Hope you and yours are well, wherever you are. Thank you for taking time to join us here on Herd Tell. A lot of what we want to cover today, some disparate stories, but we think they kind of all go together under the theme of the things we try to do. Uh, we're going to update the situation in Sri Lanka that it goes from bad to worse. The cowardly president finally did resign from Singapore via email. We'll touch into that story in just a little bit. Uh, we're going to end the program with a little bit of fun. Uh, those great space images we're getting from the JWTS, what that has to do with disco predicting it. Yes, I said disco, the music, the balls, and all that fun stuff. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, we're going to talk about this COVID variant that's ripping through uh, the world and the country specifically, getting more and more headlines. What's noise? What's not? Is it time to panic? Is the news media just making a panic for panic's sake? We're going to delve into it. The military's having a hard time getting folks. Let's go to the Denver Post. These are tough times for military recruiting. Almost across the board, the armed forces are experiencing large shortfalls in enlistment this year, a deficit of thousands of entry-level troops that is on pace to be worse than any since the Vietnam War. It threatens to throw a wrench into the military's machinery, leaving critical jobs unfilled and some places with too few people to function. COVID-19 is part of the problem. The lockdowns during the pandemic have limited recruiters' ability to forge bonds face-to-face -face with prospects, and military's vaccine mandate kept some other would-be troops away. The current white-hot labor market, with many more jobs available than people to fill them, is also a factor, as rising civilian wages and benefits make military service less enticing. But longer-term demographic trends are taking a toll as well. This is from the Denver Post. Less than one-quarter of young adults are physically fit enough to enlist and have no disqualifying criminal record, a proportion that has shrunk steadily in recent years and shifting attitudes toward military service means that now only about one in ten young people said they would even consider it. To try to counter those forces, the military has pushed enlistment bonuses as high as $50,000 and offering quick ship cash of up to $10,000. Where was this when I was enlisting? For certain recruits who can leave for basic training in 30 days or less. To broaden the recruiting pool, service branches have loosened the restrictions on neck tattoos and other standards. The Army is the largest of the armed forces, and recruiting shortfalls is hitting it the hardest. As of late June, it had recruited only about 40,000 of the roughly 57,000 new soldiers it wants to put in the boots by September 30th, the end of the year. By the way, part of that is because they have a higher churn rate than the other military services. They also have some lower enlistment options for lesser years. That means they turn over a lot more people, which means they need a lot more bodies. So to be fair to them, that's part of the problem there. It's always been a problem with the U.S. Army. Back to the Peace Denver Post. So Sergeant Pullum, this is the recruiter from the piece, a helicopter mechanic who turned to recruiting five years ago, was hunting for anyone who might want to join, even if they didn't know it yet, like many soldiers who make recruiting their career. He believes in what he was selling because he knew the Army service had done for him before he enlisted in 2012. He was a 31-year-old warehouse worker in North Carolina, working extra shifts to support his three children. A year later, he was working on age 64 Apache helicopters with his housing and education paid for. 
It changed my entire life, he said. And that's the gift I have to give to other people. You can find the people that need it, but that ain't always easy. The other branches are not having an easier time of it. The Navy and Marine Corps do not release recruiting figures before the end of the fiscal year, and a spokesman said, but both have acknowledged it's going to be a hard time meeting their quotas. Even the Air Force, which rarely has trouble attracting talent in the past, is about 4,000 recruits short of the level that typically reaches by midsummer. Bottom line, we're in a week-to-week dogfight, Major General Edward Thomas Jr., Commander of the Air Force Recruiting Service. We are growing hopeful that we may be able to barely make this year's mission, but it's uncertain. Thomas said the short-term problem of COVID-19 kept recruiters away from the county fairs, street festivals, and their most productive hunting grounds, high schools. The relationships that recruiters were not able to cultivate during face-to-face in the pandemic's early stages meant there is now a drought of graduates signing on the dotted line. A modest recruiting bump from the snappy ad service ran before the screenings of Top Gun helped a little bit, but the general pointed to larger long-term concerns about the shrinking pool of young Americans who are both able and willing to serve. In recent years, the Pentagon has found that about 76 of adults aged 17 to 24 are either too obese to qualify or have other disqualifying medical issues or criminal histories that make them ineligible to serve without some kind of a waiver, which is a lengthy and difficult process. And what the military calls propensity, the share of young adults who would consider serving, has fallen steadily for several years. It took, it stood at about 13% when the pandemic started. Now it's 9%. There's just a lower level of trust with the U.S. military and the U.S. government, he said. Of course, maintaining one of the world's largest militaries even eventually requires volunteers. And it's never been easy, and that's not the first time in 49 years since the U.S. ended the draft the recruitment has fallen short. When civilian jobs are plentiful, as they are now, the military tries to compete using two tactics, sweetening the deal with signing bonuses, better pay, and other enticements, and lowering the standards a bit to enlist people who might not otherwise qualify. The military has also had to adapt to downsizing. The number of active duty service members is now about half what it was in the 80s and is projected to keep decreasing. That makes for smaller, easier to meet quotas, but also diminishes the military's most reliable advertising pool, its own people. Research has repeatedly shown young adults who know someone who has served, a parent, a coach, teacher, family member, friend, are more likely to enlist than those who are not. That pattern has made the armed forces something of a family business, and led to some communities, many of them in the Southeast, supplying a disproportionate share of the recruits. But even in those kinds of communities, recruiting has been a tough sell this year. The city of Fountain, Colorado, a few miles from Fort Carson, is a patchwork of working-class neighborhoods with strong military ties. But the recruiting station here has not met its goals for three months. On a recent evening, Pullman met with six prospective recruits, at a park for a weekly workout of push-ups and sit-ups in a group were three recent high school graduates who had been planning for years to join a young woman trying to get away from a home life she did not want to talk about. 26-year-old man named Francisco Bora, whose father had been in the Army. Bora had tried to join before but was rejected for poor eyesight. He was hoping the Army would take him this time around. I want to do it for my family and my kids, he said, to better our lives. Now, why am I reading that to open up an edition of Heard Tell? Because our country is a reflection of us. And military service is a reflection of a very thin slice of us. The percentage of people who serve or know somebody in the firsthand basis that does serve has gotten smaller and smaller over the years. But the military doing drawdown with a reduction in things like the war on terror and our withdrawals from Iraq and Afghanistan in recent years, drawdowns happen. Now, when I went in the military in the year 2000, 
we had just gone through a drawdown, the Clinton drawdowns, things like mid-level exemptions and early retirements had vastly lessened the military's uh, personnel ranks. But it also bit us a little bit because 9-11 happened, kind of came out of the blue. We found ourselves shorthanded and we needed more people. Now, that worked itself out because 9-11 also brought a surge of recruits. A lot of people went and signed up. I know a lot of them personally. I'd already been in for over a year when 9-11 happened, but I saw it. But the last 20 years of how the government has used the military is something that everybody that is trying to be recruited now, they see that. They've seen what the military has had to do, the burden it's had to bear, and the leadership and personnel and policy decisions overseas, especially that the military has had to work under for the last 20 odd years of the war on terror era. And a lot of them don't like it. They don't like the foreign war entanglements. Now, I know that's rhetoric we usually stomp on, but when it comes to people signing up, it's a real thing. People have to trust their government and they have to trust that the military is a good thing. And those numbers keep dropping because belief and faith in our government keeps dropping. If you take it in a vacuum, you can look at polling data where people still trust the military far more than any other institution of government. The problem is we are now in an information age and people understand that the military, good and noble as it may be for most folks, they understand now that it is completely beholden to the civilian leadership, our president and our Congress. And they don't like what they've been seeing. Yes, the economy has a lot to do with it, but a lot I think has to do with it. They don't like how they're being used, and increasingly, they see the government as handling the military like they handle a lot of things, like education, like law enforcement, like the pension and benefit system in our country that's been in a lot of trouble, and we talked about earlier this week, is going to go insolvent if nothing's done. They don't like how it's managed. They don't like how it's welded, and they don't trust the government to use it effectively. And when you're signing on the dotted line, with a cashable check up to and including your life, which is what you're asking recruits to do, they don't like it. They see the disconnect, and it's going to be a harder and harder sell. I think the military is a wonderful career path, and I'm biased here because I did that. I was working at Walmart, unloading trucks, having already left college more than once, and not really doing really well in life. Military changed my life, and it gave me a lot of things. It also changed my life and gave me a lot of things in negative ways. On the balance, I'd do it again. I'm proud of my service. I'm proud of my country. And even with all the bad that came in, medical problems, things that I have to deal with to this day, I'd still do it again. But you have to sell that to young kids, especially, or young adults, and tell them that it's worth it. You need to give them a government that is worthy of their service, not our country. They still love our country. They still think our country's great. They got questions about our government. That accountability thing we're always talking about, this is where it starts showing up. And it shows up in a way that's really, really going to bite us. Because at some point, there's going to be another attack. There's going to be another war. There's going to be another crisis. And people are going to turn to our military to protect our country or to do a humanitarian mission somewhere or some other thing that they can do uniquely among anything else that we have. And if they can't get people in, they're going to be shorthanded trying to do it. And it's our government's own fault for not being accountable and making it more attractive by saying, you can serve us honorably and we won't betray that. Because a lot of the evidence, especially over the last 20 years, says otherwise. More hard tell right after this. 
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, COVID's back all over the headlines, so we'll go to who we've always been leaning on, our friend Dr. Michael Siegel who's been doing yeoman's work on this at Ordinary Times. He's got a new piece out about it as part of his Thursday throughput. We'll link to it in notes reading in your entirety. I'll just read it uh, verbatim. Uh, It seems like everyone and their dog has come down with the case of COVID last few weeks. While the official number only shows minor increases, the massive increase in in in-home testing means most cases are now going unreported. The CDC now estimates that for every reported case, we have seven unreported cases. For comparison, during the height of the pandemic, it was one in three hospitalizations have begun to tick up, hitting levels we hadn't seen in six months. Deaths are so far mercifully flat, although still at a rate that will take 100,000 lives over the course of a year. So what's going on here? The culprit is a BA5 variant. This new variant now comprises the majority of new cases. It has three mutations to spike protein, which not only makes it far more infection, it's approaching measles levels of infectiousness, but able to avoid antibodies, whether obtained from vaccination or naturally. Uh, we don't know yet if it's more severe because very few people have not been exposed to COVID, even through m- vaccination or infection, and an increasing number of people have had COVID multiple times. But even if it doesn't kill, the variant can still cause significant illness and long COVID, but the massive infectiousness is the bigger concern. Not only does this mean this vi- variant is spreading like wildfire and may evade many of the methods, masking, outdoor activities, etc., that work to slow down the previous variants. Basically, we seem to be in a cycle where COVID is throwing new things at us every six months or so as it continues to circulate. What we are doing is blunting its edges, but short of shutting down the entire planet, we seem to be stuck with the scenario we feared two and a half years ago, a new endemic virus that emerges every six months to a year to extract a new toll in sickness and death. The good news? Vaccines still work in preventing severe death and illness. If it had been six months since your last vaccination or infection, you might want to seek out and see if you're eligible. Very few people are, unfortunately. Masking indoors is still a good idea. If you're sick, stay at home as much as possible. We're currently testing bivalent vaccines that show promise, not only in defending against BA5, but against future variants. Paxloid is still showing great effectiveness against the new variants. New treatments are in the pipeline. And ultimately, there's the hope of a universal coronavirus vaccine down the road. In short, the war has not ended or even gone into a stalemate. We missed our chance to defeat this, assuming we ever had one, but our weapons continue to work and our geniuses continue to refine and improve them. The worst case scenario would be a much more deadly variant, but a more likely scenario seems to be a new immunivating variant every six months to a year until we develop a universal vaccine. That's Michael Siegel writing in Ordinary Times, turning down the noise on the increasing headlines and noise over COVID. I know people are sick and tired of it. Everybody is. Everybody can make up their own mind whether they want to do additional vaccines and boosters or not. But this is just good information that has it turned down. More Hertel right after this.
Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, another returning guest, another of our Young Voices contributors. He's been here before. Excited to have him back. I always like when I get a transport guy to talk to. We're going to be talking energy and environment more today. Uh, he's with the Show Me Institute out there in St. Louis. That's Missouri for those of you from Logan. They call that the Show Me State out there. Uh, Jacob Puckett, welcome back to the program, sir. Great to be with you, Andrew. Thanks for having me back. How's things in energy land? Nice and calm, no headline news making, nothing, <laughs> nothing real serious going on. Why are we on this topic anyway? Well, you know, quite simply, the Biden administration is reaching for an energy policy lever that they should not be pulling. So they have their clean energy goals, and those goals or progress towards those goals is moving frustratingly slow, which you know, it's understandable. You know, other than inflation, what isn't frustratingly slow these days? But what they did to, to work around that is they turned to the Defense Production Act to speed up the process. Now, the Defense Production Act is a wartime measure to boost supplies critical to national security. It is not a genie that grants you policy wishes, which unfortunately, that is how the Biden administration is trying to use it. And ironically, uh, the administration itself is hampering the production of the very things that they're frustrated are not being produced. So it's all backwards how they're approaching that. Now, let's zoom out big picture, and then we'll come back into this a little bit, because we always like to do context here. We want to turn down the noise on this sort of thing. There's a very old joke in politics, and there's a lot of truth to it, like a lot of jokes that uh, Democrat uh, politicians, especially Democratic presidents and policymakers in Congress, their environmental policies only go as far as the nearest swing voter. Now, it's a little facetious, but there's some truth to that, because part of what the president's fighting up against here is, he has a very loud, very progressive wing of his party. He, he himself has moved more progressive as he's aged. He, he's always kind of been on the, on the edge of the middle of the Democratic Party. So he's, got, he's more progressive now than he was during the Obama years, for sure. So he has all that going on behind him. But in front of him, he has economic headwinds. In front of him, he has a worldwide energy crisis. We have uh, the war in Ukraine that's messing up energy and food production. There's a lot of this that's outside of his control, but that old adage I brought up, that's why this stuff gets sticky in a hurry, right? Because people don't really care about energy policy until gas prices go up or electricity bills go up or we have a blackout or taxes raise or something. This is the political reality, even though we talk about this in a policy world, you can't separate them, can you? Right. And energy policy is one thing. Energy policy results uh, are what people feel the most. And that's a very good point you bring up, Biden trying to uh, essentially have his foot on both sides of his party, trying to reach the swing voter who's you know, pretty upset and frustrated by gasoline prices, while also not trying to uh, essentially cross the climate lobby um, uh, on that side of the aisle. And you can see this tightrope walking that he's trying to do. On the one hand, he's trying to say that he's doing everything he can to increase oil production, to bring down gas prices. On the other hand, his uh, EPA is now considering further regulating the Permian Basin uh, in Texas and New Mexico, which is the most productive and lowest cost oil field in the U.S., which would only decrease U.S. oil production even further. So he's, he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. We had this thing about a month ago now, um, Jacob Puckett joining us, where he wrote the open letter to the oil executives about the refineries. Now, to be fair here, 
the problems with refineries have been going on for decades. We haven't really built a brand new refinery since the late seventies. I believe we keep rebuilding them, remaking them, things like this. There's in, there's institutionally built in problems with our energy production. I know we talk about drilling and opening for there's more to it than just that because the refinery process is broken. The transportation process is broken. The reason Permian Basin where oil is the second greatest export after football down there is that way is because you can just drive up to it, get it and drive away. And then they, the refinery capacity, the logistics stuff, your transport guy, that all plays into this too. So when we're talking about drills and leasing and things like that, that's just a sliver of this. If we can't refine it and we can't export it, it doesn't really matter, does it? Right. You don't put raw oil in your car. You need to refine it and turn it into gasoline. Uh, now, you're right. The last time an oil refinery was built was the first term that Joe Biden had in the U.S. Senate all the way back in, I believe, 1973. Uh, so, yes, this is a decades long problem uh, that the U.S. has not increased its refining capacity anymore. As a matter of fact, we're going in the opposite direction. You have these huge companies who run who run the oil refineries are increasingly looking at converting these to biofuel refineries. So you don't, you don't put gasoline and diesel in anymore like you used to, so you can get a different product. And the reason that they're doing this, I, I think, is uh, they're seeing the political writing on the wall that um, this administration does not want them to, at, at the end of the day, increase fossil fuel production. So they're, they're understanding that they're not going to have the support um, that they would need for long-term stability, and they're, they're making decisions based on that. Yeah, Jake, you joining us. Um, now, our friends overseas have gone to more extreme measures than we have. Um, Australia, Germany, France is even talking about it now, bringing back online some cold fire plants to try to uh, adapt to the energy crisis. I don't think we're going to be able to do that here because of our regulatory process. And when they shut down these coal plants, there's just no way to really restart those in any kind of, because of the way they have to decertify them through the EPA. We don't have that lever. Is that why he's going towards executive action? We understand the mess in Congress and this election year, and we're probably going to have a split Congress for the rest of his term. Is that why he's looking at executive things that he can get his hands on, like pressuring the executives like DPA, like these things, because we just don't have the things like a parliament has We're like, oh, we'll just fire the coal plants up. That's not happening here, is it? <laughs> no, you've, you've seen this for several presidents now uh, when they have their big, bold uh, policy initiatives that they want to get underway, but they don't have the legislative support to do it. What else do they have? They have their regulatory state and they have their executive actions. And, and that's what uh, the president is doing by invoking the Defense Production Act. And, and there's a great example here of um, how his policy goals aren't really even on the same page. So with, with the Defense Production Act, um, the administration would essentially be subsidizing mining for rare earth minerals. Now, those are used for things like uh, battery electric storage, solar panels, wind turbines, cell phones, laptops, all sorts of digital technology. And we don't really produce any of it here in the United States. Um, we have very strict mining regulations, much stricter than other parts of the developed world, um, in, in, including uh, restrictions that the Biden administration itself within the past year and a half has put on this mining activity to make it harder to do. 
Now, when he wants more of it, I, I don't know why he thinks he can just snap his fingers and subsidize it, um, lift it up with one hand, push it down with the other. No, you, you need to get everything on the same page. Um, essentially, cutting red tape here is going to go a lot further than cutting checks. Yeah, and not, this is a reason to open the market, not keep subsidizing. Yeah. Now, to be fair here, Trump tried this, too. He was kicking around the idea. You touch on it in your piece. We're linking to it in the show notes. Make sure you read the entire piece. Um, he was kicking around actually using DPA to subsidize and fire back up the coal plants. Now, that probably wasn't going to be a good idea. There's two problems there. One is you've got to deal with the executive overreach of it. Number two is you got to deal with as a good policy. So it's not just Biden, not to pick on him, but he's in the chair here. DPA, just for folks, let's make sure we got the nomenclature right. What was it actually designed to do and what is it turned into? Because we've seen it now with, we saw it during COVID, which was probably an appropriate usage of it. We saw it with the baby formula stuff, which was probably not. And then we see it again raising with this, which definitely isn't. So just break it down for folks. What was DPA designed to be and why is it uh, a bad idea for most of the instances that we're seeing it used now? The Defense Production Act at its heart is a wartime measure meant to boost supplies critical to national security. Uh, It was passed back in the Korean War, I believe. And its whole purpose is to mobilize things uh, at a very quick pace that the government might need in times of a war. Now, last I checked, we're not in a war. Uh, And especially not with the things that, and and you're right, not just Biden, but also Trump, have been trying to use this for. And and that's a great point you brought up with uh, the Trump administration considering using the DPA to bail out coal plants. It just shows you how fickle DPA usage is. Uh, it lurches from one administration to the next. And it's, it's the opposite of the stability that you get from sound legislation and sound regulatory decision making that you know, the, the industries in question need that to uh, need that to thrive. Yeah, Jacob Hooker joining us. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue to talk about these issues. We're going to get a little bit more into the regulatory state because I think a lot of folks still don't fully understand how powerful that is. And the power isn't just the power, it's the inertia. of it. it just kind of lurches forward. More with that, our good friend Jacob Puckett rejoining Herd Tell from Young Voices. More with him right after this. Welcome back, our friend Jacob Puckett. I was just telling him I'm trying real hard not to call him Chuck Puckett, for those of you from Fayette County. Uh, welcome back, my friend. All right. Again, we like to zoom out a little bit what we're talking about. We're talking about the regulatory state here. Real quick, let's just break this down for a second, and then we'll get into the Supreme Court just recently ruling on this. The real fight within the fight behind the scenes here is with Congress mostly deadlocked for the most part over the last few years. The regulatory state continues to grow and continues to test its powers, and then the judicial has to step in. Describe the power of the regulatory state in these instances, especially something like the EPA, which is a massive, it's a massive federal bureaucracy. It has an important role to play, but it's also a huge jobs program, and it's also a huge part of the government, and therefore it's also a big political cudgel. Just talk about the regulatory state, kind of break it down for folks so they understand, like, 
The regulatory state is broken because it is filling the place of Congress, which is our elected officials, which is how the system is actually designed to work. Right. When you're talking about big picture, long term, high impact uh, political agendas, that is something that ultimately should be left to the elected representatives of the people, Congress. In the absence of a functioning Congress, you get the administrative state you know, in, in the form of the EPA, um, the Department of the Interior, et cetera, political appointees at the heart of it, uh, making those big time decisions that the Congress should be making. Um, you, you've seen it many times throughout the years. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, uh, with the EPA considering uh, finding that the Permian Basin is not attaining sufficient air quality standards. Um, that's something that they can use as a cudgel to uh, essentially go after an activity that they don't like, oil production. Um, and you can see it through all sorts of other things. And, and part of the problem is some regulations are direct. They get right to the heart of the matter. Others are indirect. They find some tangential way to um, you know, crawl into regulatory areas that they were never intended to be. Um, and, and we saw some of that uh, with the Supreme Court case, West Virginia versus EPA, where the EPA, uh, the Supreme Court ruled, essentially discovered that it had authority in a, in a statute that was written back in the 70s that nobody knew that it had uh, for the past 50 years. And they just discovered, so to speak, that they had it and then started to use that uh, to regulate beyond their authority. Yeah, Jacob Puckett joining us. Okay, is there any way to get Congress moving on these sorts of issues? We understand the political environment. The midterms are getting ready to happen. We're probably going to have a split Congress with a Democratic president and a Republican Congress, if not a Republican Congress and Senate. Is there any hope of any kind of legislative push against any of this regulatory state in the near future? What we often see with a split Congress, of course, is they'll do some performative bills that they know won't pass, but they'll get it and make the other side fight against it, that sort of thing. But two months ago, we didn't think there's going to be any gun legislation go through. Who knows what happens the rest of the year? Is there anything anywhere in here where there's going to be any kind of compromise on environmental issues, on energy, on gas prices, on any of this sort of stuff? Well, I don't know. The good thing, one encouraging thing to see is um, when, when you have some federal regulatory agencies that do play an important role, uh, for instance, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission um, you know, fulfills a role that I think would be very difficult for uh, Congress to fulfill. It's good when you see elected officials interacting with those agencies um, preferably in a bipartisan manner, if not the whole Congress, then a group of, of, of members of Congress and talking to them about these issues. Um, is, I do find it quite interesting that you do see a unified, largely, largely unified Congress um, pushing back against the president's, president's proposal for a federal gas tax holiday. Um, even members of his own party are opposed to this. In my opinion, it's just a gimmick. I, I don't know if, if, uh, that would actually have any real effect on passing lower fuel prices on to customers. Um, but that is one instance where you're seeing uh, unified bipartisan support um, pushing back against the bad energy policy idea. Okay. So when we have a complex issue like energy, like environmental concerns, by and in large, I tend to lean towards a, you need more of an all of the above than a pet project solution. Mm -hmm. 
we're seeing some movement on some interesting things right now. There's all of a sudden a renewed interest in nuclear power. We're seeing some states uh, actually change their regulations towards nuclear. We're seeing some actual serious investment in nuclear, which the thing with nuclear is it's it's cheaper to produce energy, but the overhead to start it up is way, way high, not to mention the regulatory thing. So we're seeing that. We know the debate going on in California about Diablo Canyon. Um, do you see a real movement or is this just kind of a blip that maybe people are going back and reexamining things like nuclear in a climate sense of like, well, hey, we're waiting on all this new technology. We have this old technology that we can spin in new ways. It feels like there's some movement there. Is that noise or is there actually stuff on the ground to be uh, in, uh, enthusiastic about here? I really do think this is a very encouraging trend that we're seeing. Um, teaching an old dog new tricks. You've got these huge nuclear power plants that have been around for decades and uh, lots of investors and developers and innovators are finding ways to essentially create smaller nuclear plants that are more operationally flexible. They're even safer and nuclear is already an incredibly safe form of uh, energy production. And that they're and, and they're more mobile and can be placed in um, placed in areas around the country that you know you wouldn't necessarily build a huge nuclear plant there, a new nuclear power plant there, but you would find room for a smaller nuclear plant. Uh, you've seen regulatory action on this. Even President Biden himself uh, is supportive of nuclear energy innovation, and you've seen you've seen the consequences around the world of neglecting nuclear power. Uh, like in France and in Germany, shutting down their nuclear plants consistently over the past decade has left them in a very vulnerable position, which is why, as you mentioned earlier, they're increasingly looking to turn back to coal. Um, so if we keep our eye on the ball with nuclear power, um, you know, we shouldn't end up in a place like Germany is in right now. And uh, it's, it's a clean form of energy production. It's safe. And it's something that we need more of. Jacob Puckett joining us. Um, just to loop back to your piece here in the closing minutes we have with you, you have a great line that you end this piece with. I want to quote it here. It says, the right process gets the right results, and legislative and regulatory actions are key to creating a viable long-term playing field. We've already detailed it. Congress is mostly dysfunctional. The regulatory, the regulatory state, by any measure, is pretty much out of control. Um, that's why we have bad policy. We have bad um Excuse me. That's why we have bad policy. We've had bad process. So we've talked about the policy side of this. Politics is practical. How do we fix the process? Is it electing better officials? Is it holding them more accountable? Is it uh, political pressure through things like action committees and fundraisers? What's the practical side of this to get the lawmakers in line so that they're invested in having a better process and know the, the voters are as well? I think too often people... Um, especially politicians, get caught up in the politics of now. They want to do something right now, and, and, and that's understandable, good for them. But these, these legislative and regulatory processes are arduous, they are meticulous, and they take a long time for a reason, so that they, they can withstand the test of time. Um, they can, these decisions can have longevity and create the stability that the industries that they're affecting need in order to have uh, a, a viable playing field. Um, that takes time. It takes a lot of effort, but the durable um, energy policies that underlie lots of what's going on today 
I'm thinking of the Clean Air Act first passed back in the 70s, uh, the Energy Policy Act passed back in the 90s that gets amended every few years or so. Those are long-term legislative achievements um, that underwent a lot of discussion, but that's also the reason that they're still around and they're still relevant today. But you know, using the Defense Production Act as a substitute for this, it makes no sense. The DPA is not a get out of jail free card and the Biden administration should stop treating it like one. Well, it makes sense politically because they're just trying, like you said, to get um, our economic friends we talk about all the time is like, you know, politicians are like the head coach and economics are like, you know, the general manager. They're both trying to win, but they're trying to do it in different levels. The presidents are always going to need to win right now, the next election, whatever. And it's going to butt against long-term policy. It's the internal problem in the system. Jacob Puckett joining us. One last question for you on this thing. Um, when it comes to energy projects, everybody's obsessing over the gas prices, of course, but that's a lagging indicator. There's a lot that goes into what you see at the pump. What's the next energy crisis? Because people are talking about it. Is it the water stuff out West and the electricity out West and what's going on in there? It, let's assume fuel prices go down at least a little bit eventually, maybe gas. Is, uh, is it energy? Is it something we saw in Texas where the grid failed because the grid isn't being properly taken care of in a regulatory manner? Uh, winter's coming. So we're going to have, you know, fuel oil in the Northeast, things like this. What's the next big energy crisis folks should be paying attention to before it actually hits? Andrew, do you remember a couple years ago when California had a couple days of rolling blackouts in their yep. heat wave? Yep. So the, the National the North American Energy Regulatory Commission has been putting out warnings for a couple of weeks now that you know, a lot more than just California's grid is at risk for the same type of thing this summer. Um, California's grid, again, with drought um, and then several Midwestern energy grids, essentially covering from the Mississippi all the way to the Pacific coast. They're saying that uh, these grids are at a higher risk of blackout under peak summer conditions. So when there's a heat wave, uh, when a lot of people are trying to use air conditioning, you know, the blackouts might not just be in California this year. And that's because we've been shutting down lots, uh, lots of baseload, reliable power capacity uh, and replacing it with things that are not as reliable. Um, are we going too fast with this? Maybe. We'll find out. Um, maybe we'll find out this summer, but that's, that's what I'm keeping an eye on. Yeah, Jacob Puckett, great stuff. Great young voices contributor. He's out of the show me state in Missouri. Uh, let folks know where they can follow you until you come back to her tell again, we enjoy having you, your social media, what you're writing about. We're going to link to the piece we've been discussing here in the show notes, make sure you read it and share it in its entirety. Let folks know where they can follow you until we see you again, my friend. Sure. All of my articles, uh, I tweet from my Twitter handle at Jacob R. Puckett. That's Jacob with a K. And uh, Andrew, thanks so much for having me. And I hope to be back again in the future. We will. And it's been funny um, with the Supreme Court ruling that you talked about. Every single picture is of the John Amos power plant, but they always grab the one of the Polka High School football field, which is right underneath it. So all those. So and I know that field. Well, we you know, it's a Horrible place to have to play football, but the mighty fighting dots of Polka High School. Yes, the mascot is the dots of Polka. <laughs> but anyway, it's just been funny because every single one of those pictures, that's the John Amos power plant in West Virginia, uh, famous power plant. So we will get you on about West Virginia one of these times, too, because there's a lot of interesting stuff out of EPA, West Virginia versus EPA ruling. It just came out yesterday as we recorded this, so we haven't had time to really go through it. 
Uh, so we'll have you back in a week or two. We'll talk through that because that's going to affect a lot of this regulatory stuff, isn't it? It is. Yeah. The court uh, is trying to rein in the EPA and that could have wider effects as well. It's an interesting time to be alive if you're covering energy and transportation, my friend. I love transportation. We're going to keep talking about it. Jacob Puckett, great stuff as always, buddy. Appreciate your time. Have a good weekend. Thanks. You too. Thank you, sir. Update to our continuing coverage of the mess in Sri Lanka. We talked about a couple of days ago the president and some other people trying to get out of the country and getting blocked. Well, he managed to get out of the country. He also lied. He didn't resign when he left the country. It took a couple of days. Uh, this is from France24.com. Sri Lankan president submitted his resignation on Thursday, shortly after reaching Singapore. The parliamentary speaker's office said days after the head of state fled protests triggered by his country's worst ever economic crisis, Gotabaya Rajapaska, still not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but I really don't care because this despicable human being doesn't deserve being properly pronounced, resigned by email, coward. The speaker's spokesman said hours after he landed in the city state, let's take a break here for just a second. The reason he's doing this is because presidential powers that they engineered with their nepotism reign under the regime basically made him immune to anything. So he wanted to get out of the country before he resigned, because if he resigned, he loses his immunity. He was afraid he would be held responsible for the mess he helped make, which he did. So the arsonist has escaped the burning house is what's going on here. Back to French 24. Rajapaska would be the first president to resign since Sri Lanka adopted a presidential system of government in 78. As president, he enjoyed the immunity from arrest and believed to have wanted to go abroad before stepping down to avoid possibility of being detained under Sri Lanka's constitution, Prime Minister Renel Wickrishmik, I'm not even going to try that one. It's it's long and difficult. I'll try to do better next time. I apologize, folks. Whose resignation is also being demanded by protesters would automatically become the acting president until parliament can appoint a successor. Meanwhile, uh, the uh, protesters said they would leave government buildings until such time as the new system goes into place, providing that this guy also steps down. It's a fluid situation in Sri Lanka. We'll continue to cover it, and we'll do more Herd Tell right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, it's Friday. Let's have a little bit of fun. Everybody's been talking about these images from the James Webb Space Telescope, and they are amazing. Our friend, uh, Dr. Michael Siegel, who knows the ins and outs of this thing, have been talking about it for a long time. It's here, like he said, they've been waiting 20, 25 years for this thing, and they are remarkable images. But some folks are having some fun with it. Let's go to The Guardian. Look, we cover a lot of heavy stuff here. We always do an uplifting topic in the show, so in the week, we're going to have a little fun with this. From The Guardian, the headline is, Disco was right. NASA's glitter ball images were predicted by pop music, especially disco. Big shot of Parliament's mothership collection right on the front. Completely love that. Um, what did you see when NASA unveiled the first images from The Guardian? Did your answer may hinge as much on your grasp of astrophysics as on your record collection? The NASA administrator, Bill Nelson, a former senator and ex-astronaut, was agog at, quote, the deepest and sharpest infrared images of the distant universe so far, for example. But music fans were more interested in comparing the images 
to dream pop, funk, and disco album covers from the Cartoon Twins. I'm actually not sure how to say that because I never heard of them. Parliament, which I've definitely heard of, love Parliament, and Saturday Night Fever soundtracks is aesthetically apt, if astrophysically inexact, response to these new insights from the heavens. The Los Angeles Times reporter Corinne Pertil and Summit Kulakari were equally turned on by the cosmic connections when they were described the arcing twistings in those telescopes' initial images as galaxies swirling around a central point like the light thrown off of a disco ball. So is the entire universe just an aesthetic derivative rehash of 70s disco futurism, if only. While the scientifically inclined might view these images as startling new renderings of light from aeons ago, and that's what uh, Michael keeps telling us because he actually knows how this stuff works. He says what we're actually doing is looking back in time because of the time it takes the light to get to us. Um, those with a closer eye on the clubs and used record tracks than on the night sky may look down on the other end of the telescope and feel we've been here before. Watch Interstellar 5555, Daft Punk's anime rendering of their 2001 album Discovery. Peep vintage disco videos such as Space by Magic Fly or stream archival Italian DJ mixes and the visual link between the outer limits that the James Webb surveys in the inner space of the disco dance floor become apparent. There's some videos attached to this. We'll have it linked in the show notes. Music has long been obsessive with the extraterrestrial, with Hayden's astronomical opera Il Mode della Luna and Gustav Holtz's The Planets, which is excellent. It's one of the best. You want as close as classical music ever gets to metal. That It's just awesome. Ziggy Stardust, which is, of course, David Bowie, and The Dark Side of the Moon, which is, of course, Pink Floyd. But it was the futuristic disco pioneers of the 70s who began sharpening and embellishing the images we were seeing from space, adding more sparkle to the stars and a bright spectrum of colors to the cosmos. Now, the stunning funkadelic images from James Webb suggest that they were right to do so. Space really is that groovy. Or as legendary Afrofuturist jazz hero Sun Ra proclaimed, space is the place. Nevertheless, the cosmic entanglements of disco and space runs deeper than sleeve art. Dave Mancuso, creator of the Loft Nightclub in New York, is the DJ widely credited with laying the foundations of disco. His set's favored spacey records, such as Dexter Wanzell's Life on Mars and Lonnie Liston's Smith's Space Princess. Larry Levain, resident DJ at Paradise Garage, who kept disco alive in the 80s, chose an equally extraterrestrial playlist with tunes like Galaxy by War, Edna Holt's Sirius, Sirius's Space Party. However, the person truly launched disco in a deep space has to be Italian DJ Danielle Baldelli, who in 79 was hired by a club called Cosmic in Laziz, a resort town on the shows of Lake Garda in Northeast Italy. There, he combined conventional soul and funk with European techno pop, imported African and Brazilian sounds, as well as snatches of German's cosmic music, uh, Krautrock, we call it in English, by bands such as Tangerine Deem and Azra Temple. Baldelli and Felic Cosmic DJs uh, were hugely popular. These singles, prized by collectors, reached a new audience in the late 90s and early 2000s thanks to reissues. Responding to the web pictures, NASA's media team, perhaps more alive to the place of candy-colored space gas and nascent stars within our cultural universe, reminded us all the shimmering wall of interstellar matter in the Carina Nebula. By the way, uh, it looks like the Burt Reynolds photo from the 70s. We need to rename that thing the Burt Reynolds Nebula. Just go look up Burt Reynolds laying on the bare rug. You'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Don't let the kids see that picture. Uh, remind us all that the shimmering walls of interstellar matter and the Carina Nebula is known colloquially as the Cosmic Cliffs, a title that sounds like an 80s Italian disco deep cut by Cano. Now, 40 years after disco demolition night sought to put an end to the genre, disco's cosmic vitality seems as undying as the Webb's telescopic starlight. 
1977, at Disco's Apex, NASA launched its deep space probes Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, each fitted with specifically commissioned gold-plated copper 12-inch record, etched with recordings from Earth, as well as universally comprehensible playback instructions for which alien, whichever alien crate digger first came across it. Feature tracks included Johnny B. Good by Chuck Berry, Box Well-Tempered Clavier, and the address from Kurt Waldenheim, the former Secretary General of the United Nations, who in the years following the Voyager launch was unmasked as a former Nazi party member. Whoops. Come on, NASA, now that's not very cosmic. When you next approach the record lathe with a view towards wanging the finished disco deep into the universe, maybe you should pick something just a little more disco. I don't know, this day and age we'd probably send, I don't know, maybe Lady Gaga or something, which would be just fine. Bad romance slaps, especially when you play it as a metal song. That'll do it for her to tell. A little fun to end a very tough week of hard news, loud news, things we turned down. Love to hear from you. Let us know how we did. Hurtelshow at gmail.com. Hurtelshow on the Twitter. Look for Twice on Sunday. That's our radio-specific program with our radio partner, BigTalker.live. That's a recap of the week that was. We got a bunch of best of and special editions that have been added to all the platforms, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. Look for all them. And, of course, we'll be back Monday with more Herd Tell. So until then, wherever you and yours are, across the street around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you're well-fed. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you again next time. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.